Sorry if I move this thing. Or, okay. When we were, my wife and I were here a few weeks back, and we both commented on how being here with y'all brought back a lot of memories. Uh, we spent 16 years in Yazoo City, Mississippi, seeking to plant a Reformed Baptist church. After that period of time, it became evident that that was not the will of God, and therefore we disbanded in peace and in love. But it, to see this little group was an encouragement to us. A lot of times when guest preachers show up to a young church plant, they're usually taken up with preaching some kind of corporate message to you. So what you need to do as a church, what your responsibility is as a church, the corporate issues that are involved in church life, which is all good and well. But that's not what I want to do today. What I would like to do today is speak to you concerning individual Christian experience from the book of Romans. J.I. Packer says this about the book of Romans. All roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a man's heart, or a woman's heart for that matter, there is no telling what may happen. I like that quote. I'm glad he said that. That's rather a bold quote, <clears throat> but I think highly accurate. Now that is my hope for our time together this morning, that at least part of this book will get into our hearts, will change things. Perhaps subtly, perhaps radically, but change us, mature us, grow us, especially in the way we think about our own personal Christian experience, especially and specifically in the realm of casuistry. Now that is an antique term, is it not? <laughs> What in the world does that archaic term mean? Well, it was a term that was a favorite of the old English Puritans, and it means the following. Resolving of specific cases of conscience, duty, or conduct through interpretation of biblical principle. Might put it this way. It is the application of the principles of the Bible to the various issues of conscience that we face as we walk with God, especially those pesky issues of what is best. We face usually at least three things. Is it right? Is it wrong? And what is best? And those are the kind of issues of conscience that we deal with as God's people. And when you put it that way, then you quickly realize that we're all engaged as casuists on a daily basis. And we need to be effective ones. We need to be good ones. We need to be proficient at the art. Because it is at the heart of pursuing holiness. It is at the heart of walking in the fear of God walking with what John Murray called a God consciousness. 
Now, I believe there are at least three parts of a puzzle as we try to establish a portrait of effective casuistry. Number one is the operations of the Spirit of God. Unless you are a Christian, you will have no care or no concern of any lasting value in this whole matter of pursuing conscience. You must have the Spirit of God. You must have those dynamics of the Holy Spirit awakening your mind and your thoughts to the realities of things unseen and eternal. Secondly, you must have the Bible. It is the Word of God. The old Puritans would say it is the warm breath of God. It is through understanding of Bible, at least at a fundamental level, the issues that we need to know in order to be a casuist. And most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but importantly. Third, and this is where I'll be focusing this morning, you must know yourself. We must know ourselves. We must have an honest, transparent self-awareness and self-knowledge. What exactly makes me tick as a sinner brought into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What makes me tick? You know, Christians are strange birds. There are many things that go on in the recesses of our minds and hearts that we cannot explain. We love Jesus Christ but we've never seen him though you've not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory we love him but we don't see him and then we find often that our love is weak anemic Sometimes our hearts are as cold and indifference to Christ as one of those stone cinder blocks. Mm. We believe God. We trust God. We've given God our souls. Yet we often doubt. We're often plagued with wretched unbelief. We have a certain an infallible hope of heaven. Yet in the recesses of our heart, we often fear that vehicle that takes us there, that vehicle of death. Mm. And Jesus Christ came. He partook of flesh and blood in order that he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, to deliver those who through fear of death had been in slavery all of their years. Christ died to... Free us from the fear of death, yet we still fear it. We still fear it at times. We hate sin. If you're a Christian this morning, your heart attitude is that you hate sin. You despise it. It is the grief of your heart. Yet we find ourselves doing it find ourselves sinning we are such contradictions how in the world can we ever become proficient biblical casuists 
resolving those perplexing cases of conscience and duty and conduct according to the book of God. Well, it is that third piece of the puzzle that I mentioned that we're after this morning. How do we attain to an accurate, honest, transparent self-assessment and self-awareness? How do we get a better handle on what makes us tick? How shall we gain the wisdom that we need for resolving the many issues of conscience that we all face? And I'm sure there are a number of principles involved in the answer to that question, but there is one thing that I am convinced that you must have if you're to be an effective casuist, and you must have a working knowledge of Romans chapter 7. Now that's my goal this morning. I'm aware of the many complexities that are involved in Romans chapter 7, the theological arguments of whether or not verse 14 and following is a man who is unconverted in the throes of conversion. Another view is that a man is converted and a mature Christian, which is my conviction. We're not going to get off into that maze. If you have any questions about that, we can talk about it later. Just remember our goal. We want to have a working knowledge, a simple, practical, useful knowledge, not an exhaustive theological seminarian knowledge. So relax. We can do this. We can do this together. And all you need to do is to get a handle on just one verse. Just one verse which may sound like an oversimplification, but I want you to hold that suspicion until the end of the study. And then you can make a judgment as to whether or not that was an oversimplification or not. Much of what I intend to say this morning will come from John Owen's famous treatise in volume six of his works, The Nature, Power, Deceit, and prevalency of indwelling sin in believers. This quote from Owen kind of puts our study into focus. Commenting on John chapter 14 and verse 30, on the night before our Lord Jesus was betrayed, our Lord said this, The ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Owen writes this, Our Savior had more temptations intensively and extensively in number, quality, and fierceness from Satan in the world than ever had any of the sons of men. But in all of them, He had to deal only with that which came from without. His holy heart had nothing like to them, nothing suited to them or ready to give them any entertainment. The prince of this world had nothing in him. So it was with Adam. When a temptation befell him, he had only the outward proposal to look unto. All was well until 
the outcome until the outward temptation took place and prevailed. With us, it is not so. That's the heart of our concern. With us, it is not so. We cannot say that the devil has nothing in us. He does have something in us. He does have an ally in us. And casuistry is clouded by that reality of indwelling sin. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 21. I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter just to kind of put it into context. I'll be reading from the New King James because I just don't like the ESV. I don't like, well, I, I like, let me rephrase that. I like the ESV. I don't like the ESV's translation of these verses. I'm actually a New American Standard man, but I know nobody reads that archaic book anymore, so I've, I've kind of capitulated to the ESV. But I'm going to use the New King James this morning. Let's read together. If you see it there, it follows I read verse 21 and following. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. We're going to concentrate on verse 21. That's our one verse that I believe will give you a good working knowledge of Romans chapter 7. Four observations. Number one is this. Indwelling sin as a law. I find then a law. Now we most often understand law as a directive or as a rule that regulates our mind and our will as to what is required or what is forbidden. For instance, thou shalt not murder, which promotes the sanctity of life, forbids the taking of life, except in certain situations. Or we may look at a law having to do with the civil realm. Let's take the speed limit, for instance, which is designed to promote vehicular safety for people on the highway. And when you get a certain amount of speed, then safety goes out the window and we have a problem and you've broken the law and therefore you must suffer the consequences if caught. I don't think many get caught out there today. But if caught, you suffer the consequences. But that's not the type of law that we're dealing with in 721. Law can have another meaning. An operating principle that inclines or urges certain actions that are in keeping with that law's nature. For instance, the law of gravity. 
everybody's a sports fan at some level. We got the World Series, we got football, we got, you know, you got a ball, basketball. It's going up in there at some point, but it's coming down. That three-pointer may have a nice long arc to it, but it's coming down. That kickoff that goes all the way through the end zone, sooner or later, that ball is coming down. Why? Because of the law of gravity, the nature of the law that forces that ball to come down. It's just inbred into that law of gravity. We see the same use of law in Romans 8, verse 2, where Paul says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Same use of the law. It is a law by nature. It does certain things in accordance with the way it is designed. Owen writes this, And for this reason doth the apostle here call indwelling sin a law. It is a powerful and effectual indwelling principle inclining and pressing unto actions agreeable and suitable unto its own nature. So we conclude that the law we have in 721 is much more than a legislative authority commanding this or that, do this, don't do that. It is, in John Murray's words, a regulating and actuating power. The law of sin that remains in your heart is a powerful force. It is not an outward, written, commanding, directing law, but it is an inbred, working, impelling, urging law not just proposed to us, but inbred in us. And brethren, it is so by its nature. Even though, even though it is no longer in dominion over our hearts as a Christian, no longer is it the ruling principle No longer does it have the strength that it once had when we were unconverted. Its nature has not changed. It is a law still, and therefore very powerful. So we find in the first place indwelling sin as a law. Secondly, how Paul came to know indwelling sin as a law. Well, the text says that he found it. Or we might say he discovered it. Meaning that he came to know it by experience. Now think with me just a minute. Paul was a Pharisee par excellence. He knew the law of God. He understood what sin was. He knew that sin was anything contrary to the holy and just law of God, and he knew covetousness was a sin. 
He could have given you all sorts of ins and outs of how covetousness was sin before God. But there came a point of time in Paul's life that he realized that he himself was a covetous man. And the very law that he believed would bring him into the realm of eternal life by the keeping of it brought him under its power and its conviction. And you can see that in verses 9 through 11. Probably much the same in some of your experiences as becoming a Christian. I know my wife, she was raised in Roman Catholic Church and she had somewhat of an aberrant view of sin. It was something out there. She was no adulterer. I've never committed adultery. But there came a point in time when she came to understand in her heart that she was an adulterer. And there was a great difference between those two things. Owen says this, those who have found not its power, those who have not discovered its power are still under its dominion. You know, knowing something and experiencing something is a vast difference in it. Um, ask Alex about being a daddy. I'm sure he read a book or two about being a daddy. He and his wife, Jenna, understood childhood. They were children. They've got friends with children. They had a comprehension of what it was to be parents. But there came a point in time when they held that baby boy, Dominic Fisher de Prima, in their hands. And then that became a whole different ballgame. Same thing with being a grandparent. Trisha and I know a lot of people who are grandparents, and we got tired of listening about my grandparents. And you just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So yeah, we understand. But there came a day when George was born. And we held that grandbaby. And there was a difference. It was the experience of it down in the depths of our hearts that we had not known before. We knew the facts. We knew. But we didn't know it in our experience. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says that he found this to be law. Third point out of verse 21. The predominant desire of his heart. The text says he wills to do good. The predominant desire of his heart is that he wills to do that which is good. Notwithstanding the sober reality that he had discovered in the powerful operations of sin in his heart, the bent, the direction of his will was always to do good. The law of indwelling sin was in him, but it did not control him. It was not his master. Grace was now the sovereign of his soul and in obedience to the operations of grace his deepest desire was always to do that 
which was good. That which was morally and spiritually good. We'll come back to this in a minute. But you ought to just stop there a minute and take a break and savor that reality in your heart. There's no greater proof in the soul of a Christian as their desire is to do good. To hate sin and to do good. I will to do that which is good. You little children in here. Is that really your heart? Now you know you always get in trouble when you do bad. And I understand that. That's part of the reason that you do good. Stay out of trouble. And that's not a bad thing. But what's important is, is what is your motivating factor in your little heart? What do you really deep down inside want to do? Do you want to do good? Do you desire to please God? God will give you a new heart if you'll ask Him. If you don't desire to do good, and He'll put that desire in you, even as a little child, to do that which pleases Him. Last point of observation is this. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. When Paul willed, desired, endeavored to do good, What does the text say? Evil is present with me. Now this is the same dynamic that the apostle articulates in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. Here expressed in his own personal experience in chapter 7 and verse 21 of Romans. It is conflict. There is a conflict in the heart of a Christian. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. When your flesh desires to do something that's not pleasing to God, then the Spirit rises up to stand against it. And when the Spirit of God urges you to do that which is right and that which is good, the flesh rises up to stand against it. Well, it's the same thing that Paul is saying here in 721 in his own experience. That when he desires to do that which is good, he gets resistance corruption of indwelling sin and that to me I'll just say this as a quick aside is the thing that the proponents of the truth that Paul is not a Christian in Romans 7 14 and following do not give due weight to there are other places in the Bible that teach the same thing Let's summarize, all right? Let's briefly brush over these observations. They're pretty simple. It's just one verse, real short verse. See if you can lodge this in your mind. 
and you will have a working knowledge of this entire chapter. Number one, indwelling sin is a law that inclines and presses to evil which is agreeable to its nature. Number two, Christians find it by the experience of the operations of grace. They come to understand that to be true. Thirdly, there is through grace the prevailing will to do that which is good. And fourthly, indwelling sin rebels and inclines to evil whenever the will to do good is active and inclining to obedience. Creating conflict. Are you with me on that? Well, congratulations. You now have a working knowledge at its most fundamental level of Romans chapter 7. I want to close <clears throat> what time did I start? Probably 11. Okay. Well, I'm okay then. I'm looking at 11.30 and I said, I ain't been up here an hour, have I? Put you all through that kind of pain. Let me give you just a couple of words of encouragement from Romans chapter 7. Number one is this. <coughs> the realism of Romans chapter 7 is both helpful and encouraging. It gives you the key to unlock the reality of your own Christian experience. But, hear me now, this is important. The conflict that you find in Romans 7, that you find in your own heart, is not an end in itself. You don't just park yourself and waller around in that verse in Romans 7 and the truth and realities of what we've just opened up. Romans 7 comes in a context. You need to keep reading. You need to go back and you need to read chapter 5. Because chapter 5 teaches us that we are now justified by faith and we have peace with God. Amen. By the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 tells us that there's been this radical breach with sin. That sin no longer is my master. Account yourself, consider yourself free from sin and attached to Jesus Christ. You're no longer under law, but you're under grace. And read about the conquest. In Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no, zero, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John Murray writes this, Because of the potency of sin and of the flesh evident in the conflict of 7.14.25 makes it all the more necessary to appreciate the victory which belongs to the believer in the bonds of Jesus Christ. 
And you've got to take in the whole picture. You've got to take in peace with God. You've got to take in the break and breach with sin. You've got to consider the conflict that goes on within the heart of a believer. And then you've got to think about the conquest by the Spirit of God over sin. If ye, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. And Paul goes on to open up that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have the power to overcome sin. you got to have the whole picture. You're a saint. Yep, you're a sinner. I understand that. I understand Romans 7 all too well. I don't understand Romans 8 as much as I need to, but I understand it. But you're still a saint. You're still a child of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. You are an invincible conqueror over sin and the devil. Now that's what the Bible teaches. If you're going to embrace one of them, you need to embrace the other. They're both just as true. Secondly, I'll say this in closing. Jesus Christ is king in the castle. Jesus Christ is king in the castle. As we venture into the castle of our hearts in all of its various hallways and chambers, we embrace the realism of conflict. But who is in charge? Who is the sovereign? Who is the ruler of the owner of the place. Sin is no longer master over us. We understand that from Romans 6. But who is? Who runs the show? Well, if you look deep into that chamber marked the inner man, the answer becomes crystal clear. There we find the throne room of Jesus Christ. The inner man, in response to his king, agrees with the law that it is good. He hates it when he sins. He wills to do that which is good. He wills not to do evil. As a matter of fact, he delights in the law of God. Delights to do the bidding of his gracious king. He hates the wretchedness of his forced captivity. And he cries out to the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ for full and final deliverance, thanking God that Jesus truly is king of the castle as he continues in the inner man serving the law and the will of God through Jesus Christ. We need to come to grips. with the reality that there is a type of dualism operating in our psychological makeup. Paul speaks of the inner man in Romans 7, and he speaks of the flesh. In another place in 
Colossians 3, 9 and 10, and Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul speaks of putting off the old man, the old self, and putting on the new man, the new self. There's an old man, there's a new man. There's the spirit, there's the flesh. And I want to try to explain to you very briefly what that is not. What that biblical dualism is not. It is not a split personality. That one day, kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you're one person. The next day, you're another person. That's not what the Bible teaches. If any of you are old enough to remember some of the carnal Christian teaching, there was an old teaching out there called the two dog theory. Is anybody, is that familiar with anybody about the two dogs and carnal Christian thinking? If you, you got two dogs in there. If you feed that one dog too much, he'll be the king. He'll be running the show. So if you feed the flesh too much flesh and he takes over, he runs the show. If you feed the spirit, if you feed that dog more food, then he'll run the show. Or oh, there was this uh, illustration of king on the mountain. Christ was there for a while, and then the flesh came, jerks him off as king, and takes over depending on which way you go and what decisions you make in your sanctification. That is not true. That is not accurate. Jesus Christ is king. No one will take His throne. No one can take Jesus off His throne. Even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. You believe Ephesians 1, 22 and following, I think you would believe that. God raised up Jesus from the dead, seated Him at His right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, put all of His enemies under His feet, given Him His head over all things to the church, that Jesus Christ sits as King of the universe for the benefit of His people. Y'all believe that, don't you? Doesn't always look like it, does it? Doesn't look like it. Doesn't always look like it. But it's true. You look at the world. You look at the situation in the world. It just doesn't look like Christ is running the show. But He is. The same way in your heart. Unfortunately, it doesn't always look like it. And we don't always act like it. But that's our desire. That's our desire. Let me read just a brief quote from Owen and we threw. Don't you hate it when a preacher says, well, we're almost through and they keep going about 30 more minutes. <laughs> I'm going to read this and we're through. And if I read the whole sheet, it wouldn't hurt because uh, it's not that long. Listen to Owen. And hence we may see what wisdom is required in the guiding and management of our hearts and ways before God. Where the subjects of a ruler are in feuds and oppositions one against another, unless great wisdom be used in the government of the whole, all things will quickly be ruinous in that state. 
There are those contrary principles in the hearts of believers. And if they labor not to be spiritually wise, how shall they be able to steer their course aright? Many men live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are, the condition of their bodies as to health and sickness they're careful to examine. But as to their inward man and their principles as to God and eternity, they know little or nothing of themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought, are acquainted with the evils of their own hearts as they ought, on which yet the whole course of their obedience and consequently of their eternal condition doth depend. This, therefore, is our wisdom, and it is a needful wisdom, if we have any design to please God or to avoid that which is a provocation to the eyes of His glory. May God help us to understand ourselves, what's going on in our hearts. And in understanding that, we become better, casuists as we walk before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power of it. And we pray that you would change hearts in this place, that you would grow us, that you would have mercy upon us, that you would even awaken someone in this place who may be dark to the reality of what's inside their heart. Help us, God, in all of our endeavors to please you and love you and serve you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Well,